It's the first seven verses of Genesis chapter 9. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground and on all the fish in the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal. And from each human being too, I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number, multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Perhaps as we've been working through our series in the Ten Commandments, you have been running a bit of a comparison in your minds between these Ten Commandments, which are God's, a reflection, a a statement of God's unchanging moral law, and the wider society and the things that we value in our society, and perhaps asking, how does our society measure up? How much do we still seek to honour and keep these good laws that are given for the good of all people? And perhaps if you were going to be running that comparison, you might say that the sixth commandment would be the one where perhaps we might see the most overlap, and that most sense in which we are seeking to honour uh, God's commandments in these ways. It's still the case, and we're so thankful it's still the case, that in our own country and many other countries, that murder is a serious crime that carries severe punishments. And in some ways, we would say it is true that perhaps on this sixth commandment, there is the most overlap. But in many ways, that's only with a surface reading of the sixth commandment. Then about you, but as I've started each week and begin to think about the commandments and to read into them and see how else these commandments are explained in the scriptures, what is so striking is the great breadth with which they apply to so many different areas of life. And that comes from seeing the foundation, the basis of these different commands. What we're going to see this morning as we look at the sixth commandment is that the foundation of the sixth commandment is that we should not murder because of the value of human life. Because human life is a precious gift from the living God. And we are thankful that in some ways we see that principle, that foundation of the preciousness of life recognized in our worlds. But in other ways, we are far from valuing life as we should. Both personally, we'll see this morning, and more generally, as we think about our world in general, we're going to see five things together as we look at the sixth commandment and that human life is precious. We're going to, first of all, seek to understand the meaning of the phrase, the command, you shall not murder, there in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13. Then we're going to ask the question, well, why is that the case? What is the basis for it? Why is human life precious? So having understood the command and the basis, then we're going to ask the question, well, what does it mean to preserve the life of others? 
What does it mean to preserve our own lives? And then finally, as we come to the Lord's Supper, we're going to think about God's valuation of human life. So let's begin, first of all, by understanding the meaning of you shall not murder, our first point. Human life is precious, so what is the meaning of you shall not murder? Well, that phrase there in the the NIV, and it's also in the ESV, is the best translation of the Hebrew, you shall not murder. Older translations sometimes say you uh, do not kill or you shall not kill. But actually, this word that's used in the Hebrew is used 47 times in the Old Testament. And it's used to describe something very particular. That is the unlawful killing of another human being. Now, taking life is a solemn thing, but the Bible does permit that in a number of circumstances. There are three for us to think about. So the Bible permits, in some circumstances, for the protection of self and others to take another life. So if you have a Bible, and you can jump through a couple of chapters in Exodus, to Exodus chapter 22 and verse 2, we read this, that if a thief is caught breaking in at night and is struck a fatal blow, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. So in protecting yourself and others, it is in some circumstances permitted to take life. And then there are two other situations where the Bible permits the taking of life. And in these two situations, they're actions of the state, not the individual. We might think of capital punishment, the death penalty. In Exodus 21 and verse 14, we read these words. But if anyone schemes and kills someone deliberately, that person is to be taken from my altar and put to death. The crime of murder and a few other crimes was punishable by death. And that was allowed, that was permitted because of the principle of justice. A life for a life in that sense. And then also the third situation, the protection of self and others and and capital punishment, the third situation is that in the case of war, it is permitted to take life. When God sent his people to war against other nations who were threatening them, those men who were fighting were allowed to take life to protect themselves and others. And that, that reminds us that there is such a thing biblically as a just war. If it is fought for a just cause, if the means that are used are proportionate to the threat that is faced, and if there is a distinguishing of military and civilian targets... So those are three situations where the Bible permits the taking of life as a solemn thing. But how then does this commandment apply, you shall not murder? Well, here are three ways in which it applies. You shall not murder means it is wrong to take life with malicious intent. That is to plan and intend to take another life. We read in Exodus 21 and verse 14, it is wrong to scheme and then kill someone else deliberately. That's the first category where it is not permitted. And then secondly, it is wrong to take life, secondly, through careless neglect. There are situations when we cannot take appropriate precautions, and it means another life uh, is ended. Uh, One of the common ones uh, in Deuteronomy 22 is a description of what happens when you're building a house. And when you were building a house back then, Uh, It would be a single-floor building, and you would have 
uh, a top uh, on the roof, people would be able to get to the roof to use the roof for different things. And it was required that you would build a parapet around the roof, a small wall there at the top. And if you didn't, then the owner was responsible if someone fell off their roof. So there was careless neglect. So, and then interestingly, a third situation where it is wrong to take life is to take life without malicious intent, but still to have taken another life. It's a manslaughter situation, as we might describe it. And, and the Bible says that is still serious, but the punishment is less severe. Maybe you know in the book of Numbers, in chapter 35, there is a description of something called a city of refuge. And six cities were to be established all around Israel. And if someone took a life accidentally, not with intent or neglect, but accidentally, that was still a serious thing because life is precious. But that person who took life was allowed to flee to one of those six designated towns in Israel. And they were to remain there until in that town until the death of the high priest. They were not to be, their death of a family member was not to be avenged. They were to be kept safe if they had been kept within that town. But they had to leave their homes. And the high priest could live a long time. It could be decades. So there were serious consequences for taking life even when you didn't intend to do so accidentally. So that's the meaning of the commandment, not to take life with malicious intent, not to take life through careless neglect, and not to take life uh, accidentally. But why is that the case? And this is the second thing we come to. We've seen the meaning of the commandment. Now we come to ask the question, why is it that human life is precious? And it's really important we see this, because we need to understand there is a biblical ground for the value of life. And whilst we might look at our world and see general agreement among people that killing is wrong in some situations, that view that killing is wrong in some situations is not from a biblical framework. And that's a problem because the moral basis by which our world comes to that decision is changing and shifting. And there has been a huge shift and an ongoing shift that we're seeing in recent days. About a week ago, I was a part of a conference uh, where we were talking about pursuing truth in science and in all of our studies. And one of the speakers there was a a retired general surgeon called Nigel Jones. And Nigel gave a fascinating talk uh, because he had been a a general surgeon for about 35 years and at the end of his life spent 10 years teaching medical ethics at Newcastle University. And he showed us the shift that had happened in the Hippocratic Oath. That's the oath that that medics take. And he showed that in its original formulation, the Hippocratic Oath spoke of absolutes, such as, I will not give poison to anyone. But that has shifted over the years, such that more recently, relative terms are used, such as, I promise to have the utmost respect for life. Now, modern ethical debates around what makes human life valuable often circulate around the ideas of personhood. But that's a problem because how do you define a person? Do you define it in terms of independent existence? Well, that has an implication for the unborn. It would have the implication for infants. 
it would have an implication for the elderly in some situations? Do you define personhood and the value of life in terms of the quality of life? But that's problematic because, well, by what standard do we judge? What is a, a quality life? A life that is of a sufficient quality in that sense. And friends, this is why God's moral law really matters. Because it grounds our life individually and collectively in the Creator's unchanging word. And the Bible gives two very clear reasons for why we should not take life. The first reason is this. Because human beings are made in the image of God. It is wrong to take life because humans are made in the image of God. Back in Genesis chapter 1, when God made mankind, making male and female, we read that we read that he made them in the image of God, creating them in his image. And as Tim read for us earlier on in the service from Genesis chapter 9, we read that passage because as God said murder is wrong, it was grounded in the reality that people bear the image of God. That's the basis. Murder is wrong because another human bears God's image. Now, this is vital because the image of God isn't about physical or mental capacity. It is not a judgment of development or age or independence from others, or quality of life. It is not subjective or relative. It is objective. Every human being has that image given to them by God. It means that we reflect aspects of God's character. We might individually reflect them in different ways to different degrees, but we all reflect the character of God. It is God's mark upon us. And in ending the life of another human being, we are removing someone created to image the great creator. Think about it like this. When when a criminal breaks into an art gallery that is displaying the work of one artist and destroys every piece of artwork, and assume they're a portrait artist as well, what is the nature of the offence? Well, that's an offence against the artist who has produced those beautiful portraits. And it's an offence against the subject or subjects of the paintings. And in a similar way, when we take life unlawfully, we are causing an offence to the creator God, both in terms of his role as artist in putting his image upon us and in terms of him being the subject Because we bear his very image. Because God has put his image onto people, we are not to remove that image or to harm people. So humans are made in the image of God. But then secondly, the second reason for why it's wrong to murder is that to create and end life is for God alone. Tim's first reading, I didn't ask Tim to read from Acts chapter 17. But maybe as you heard Tim read it, you noticed a phrase I was going to highlight. Because there Paul says, in speaking to the Athenians, that God himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. God creates life. And it is God's role alone to end life. So 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 6, Hannah there in her, in her song declares, The Lord brings death and makes alive. 
he brings down to the grave and raises up. And so, friends, when we take life, we are taking a role that belongs to God alone. In Psalm 139, verse 16, David says, All the days you ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God has numbered the days of someone's life, not us. And so for those two reasons, humanity made in God's image, and then to create and end life being something for God alone, we are not to take the life of another human being. Now that is so different to the worldview of our culture around us, because an evolutionary worldview says that humans are just developed animals. But God draws a clear distinction between the humans and the animals and everything else. Human life is precious. Now, just as we perhaps pause there, can I challenge us all to think carefully about the ways in which the things that we watch and we read and we listen to can devalue and desensitize us to the value of human life. I wonder what ways in which things we use for entertainment might be working in our hearts to desensitize us to the value of life and the seriousness of murder. Those who chart the way in which entertainment is changing would definitely say television and films are getting more and more violent. And it's especially concerning to see that violence is used for humour and entertainment. Be careful, friends, because what you watch will shape your heart and will affect your values. So human life is valuable because God has made men and women in God's image. And life is for God to give and God to take away. But then we might ask the question, then, how is it we are to keep this commandment? And perhaps, as far as we've gone to this moment, you might say, well, I'm doing rather well today because I've not taken a life maliciously. I've not taken a life through neglect. And I haven't taken a life when I didn't mean to accidentally. But we should be careful. Because the implications, friends, of the preciousness of human life are far broader than we think. The Heidelberg Catechism, a statement of Christian truth, anticipates that very thought in question 107 where it says, is it it enough then that we do not kill our neighbor in any such way? The answer is no. When God condemns envy, hatred, and anger, he commands us to love our neighbors as ourselves, to show patience, peace, gentleness, mercy, and friendliness towards him to protect him from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. Martin Luther was an expert at capturing things in short sentences, and he said this, this commandment is broken not only when we do evil, but also when we fail to do good to our neighbor. And once we see, and we've spent time on this for for this reason, once we see, friends, the preciousness of human life, we will see the implications of this commandment, you shall not murder, are far wider than we think. Because if I'm not permitted to destroy God's image in people, that means I am also called to preserve it as much as I am able. 
So now we're going to see this commandment calls us to things in how we behave towards others and in how we think of ourselves. And we come here to our third point as we think about others, that we are to preserve, therefore, the life of others. All life from conception to death is precious. And we should be particularly concerned for the unprotected. Psalm 82 verse 3 calls us to defend the weak and the fatherless. And in our day, we lament the murder of the weak in the womb through abortion. Now, next Sunday, with God's help, we're going to consider the Bible's teaching and our response to that issue of abortion. It's a big issue for us to think about. But we'll come back to that next week. As we think about it this week, we need to recognize that euthanasia and assisted suicide is a significant concern as we think about protecting and preserving the life of others and those who are unprotected. There is growing pressure in the UK for us to adopt assisted suicide laws, such as there in Canada and the Netherlands. It would be a good thing for us to watch out, in, watch out for in future election manifestos. A few years ago, 4% of deaths in the Netherlands were by euthanasia. And we should lament, we should lament, we should be moved, friends, and mourn that the elderly and the infirmed are seen as a burden upon society and our families, rather than as other image bearers whose lives have ongoing dignity and value right up to death. God says all human life is precious because it bears my image. And so it is not for us to determine what standard of life is valuable. It is not for us to introduce ideas of personhood that aren't biblical, that bring about a subjective standard for what is a human being. Now, advances in medicine allowing us to artificially sustain life raise complex questions that we're not able to get into now. But just to touch on that, this commandment does not mean that we should always prolong life as much as possible when someone is suffering through terminal illness. Terminating life and ending treatment are not the same thing. But we are not to, not to act to end life because God has numbered our days. And this is really, really important. And it's important we see that this this pressure to bring about euthanasia and assisted suicide is coming about because the worldview of our day is that we are seeking a utopia, perfect existence here and now. That we don't understand um, that, that we're seeking suf no suffering at any cost. Now, now, the Christian view, the Bible's view of suffering is it's not something to seek and we should do all we can to minimize suffering lawfully but not at any cost, friends. The Bible teaches us not to expect a perfect life here and now because we live in a world where sin has come into our world and the effects, the sad effects of sin and the curse in our world means that there is suffering in that sense. But, but Jesus died, friends. Jesus died and Jesus rose to give us hope beyond suffering and hope beyond the grave. 
And that means that whilst dying can be very hard, it can be horrible. For the believer, death is an enemy defeated by Christ. For the believer, death is not the end. And God uses that hope of eternal life to strengthen us to endure suffering now. I often read those words in 2 Corinthians with those who are suffering, where Paul reminds us that an eternal weight of glory is before us that will outweigh all affliction in this life. It's an amazing thing to think about, isn't it? Any affliction and human suffering is outweighed by the eternal glory that is before us as God's people. So we are to preserve life by being particularly concerned for those who are unprotected and supporting those who are suffering. But preserving life also means that we help others in need. The scriptures teach, as you have opportunity, that we are to act to preserve the lives of others by helping them in their essential needs. And maybe we know well the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, where we are not to be like the robbers who took that man and and, and hurt him and beat him and left him for dead, robbed him. We're not to be like the robbers, but we're also, we know that, but we're also not to be like the religious leaders who just passed him by and crossed the road. Rather, we are to be like the Samaritan who was a good neighbor, helping those who were before him as he had opportunity. It's striking. I was reading one of the Puritans, Thomas Watson, who has a an explanation of the Ten Commandments, and he focuses on particular aspects. And the Puritans are interesting because they were experts both in the Bible and in the human heart. They knew human heart really well, and they focused on that. He has an extended section in his commentary on this commandment, giving many reasons why we should show good to our neighbor in accordance with God's word. I thought, well, why is he pressing this home so much? But then, of course, we remember that our callous hearts can easily find reasons to cross over the road, can't they? We're quick to cross and we're slow to stop. So preserve life by helping others in need. But also living in a way that preserves life means also that we take care in situations of high risk. We are thoughtful about that. Do you know what is the leading killer worldwide of children and young people aged 5 to 29? Road traffic accidents. Astonishing to read that. When we drive a car, that's a risky thing. Do we take care in how we drive? Do we observe the speed limit? Are we giving the road attention and not being distracted by other things. Living in a way that preserves life means taking care in situations of high risk. But before we come to think about our own lives and what it means for our own lives, can I also add that whilst we've taught there about actions and and things we can do in that sense, we need to watch our hearts as well, friends. Because we can do harm to people in our hearts which is wrong in itself, and then may lead us to mistreat people in our actions. And there are two main dangers the Scriptures would call us to watch. We are to watch out for the sin of sinful anger. Jesus teaches that just as murder is serious, so is sinful anger. Maybe you know the words in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and 22, where Jesus says, 
You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. So Jesus says, saying that just as murder is serious, so is sinful anger in our hearts. And one of the many reasons for that is that when anger boils in our veins, it can lead us to act with our hands in ways that are wrong. But not only anger, can I also call us to think about the issue of envy? A jealous heart for what God has given to others is wrong. And envy and murder are closely linked. Let me know the story in the life of Joseph, there at the end of the book of Genesis. And Joseph's brothers envied him because he seemed to have his father's special love. He was the favored child as far as Jacob was concerned, and that wasn't right. But the brothers' response to it in their hearts was that they were jealous and were prepared to murder him. Envy is particularly dangerous, dangerous because it burns slowly in our hearts. Anger often emerges quickly and then dies down, but envy is deeply rooted. And if left unchecked, it can lead to great damage to ourselves and others. Proverbs 29, identify, 27 verse 4 Reminds us of this when it says, anger is cruel and fury overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? Friends, keeping this commandment means that we value the lives of others. But then, can I come thirdly, uh, sorry, fourthly, for us to see that keeping this commandment means that we preserve our own lives also. Just as it is not right for us to take the lives of others, The Bible teaches it is not right for us to take our own lives either, because they are God that is God's gift to us. In one of the Sherlock Holmes novels written by Arthur Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes uh, comes to meet a lady who's an animal trainer who has been horribly scarred by one of her animals. I think it was a lion. And she discloses to Sherlock Holmes, a detective, that she is considering suicide. And his words to her are. Your life is not your own. Keep your hands off it. And friends, can I just say that if that is something that you are considering, please speak to another mature Christian. There is no shame in sharing that struggle. We value your life and we want to help. Speak to someone if that's a struggle for you. But in preserving our own lives, as we see the breadth of what this means, it also must mean that we are to care for our bodies appropriately. God has given you a life as a gift, and we are to seek to maintain our health as far as we are able. And that means there is good reason for us to pursue a healthy, balanced diet. There are many verses in Scripture that speak of the sin of gluttony. The Bible does not command a certain body shape, but it does call us not to over or indeed to under eat. And as we think about other things, we would say diet, we would say exercise. As far as we are able, we are to maintain our health because our bodies, our lives are a gift of God. And also 
adequate sleep, which we've all been reminded of during this heat wave. Care for your body. It is God's gift to you. But also watch your heart. Just as we think about how we might consider others in our hearts, we are also to think carefully about ourselves in a right way. How you think about yourself matters. Now, now we know that puffed up pride is wrong, but so is excessive self-pity or a low value of our own lives. There's a lot of focus in our world on um, speaking about finding self-worth. And I understand why our world is focusing on that, because we are concerned that people have low self-esteem, because that can lead to other things. But the Bible gives us even stronger reasons for us to be careful with our lives, because everything that we have said about the lives of others applies to you personally. Everything we've been challenged about from the Scriptures about the value of a human life is your life this morning. So we need to say to ourselves, I have value and worth, not because of what I do, not because of what I own, but because I am made in the image of God. And that's you this morning. You do not need to create your worth or prove your worth. God has given you worth as a gift through his image. See that, friends, in how you think about yourself. But then fifthly and finally, we've looked at the commandment and what it means. We've thought about the preciousness of human life and the image of God. We've thought about preserving our own lives and the lives of others. But then fifthly, as we come to a close, I want you to see God's valuation of a human life. Now, I wonder, how would you value a human life this morning? Well, If you work in the area of government statistics, you may know that the government has to put a statistical value on a human life for insurance purposes so that life insurance claims can be paid out if someone dies in an accident and things like that. And and having checked this, I think it's around a million pounds in the UK. That statistical valuation of a human life. But that, I understand, is mainly based on the earnings through a lifespan. It's all about what you earn. Maybe you've been fascinated this week and the week before to see the bids for Mo Salah, the Liverpool striker. What was it? 150 million they started at from Saudi Arabia, and now they're at 215 million pounds. Is that the value of a human life? Well, how does God show the value of a human life? He shows it in the gift of his son. God the Father values human life so highly that for those who believe, he gives the life of his precious son in their place. And there is no figure, there is no value that you can put upon the Lord Jesus. You cannot quantify the value of Jesus' life. And here's a striking thing, friends. For what kinds of people did the Son of God give his life? For murderers, in hands and in heart. For people who haven't valued the lives of others as they should. For people who haven't valued their own lives as they should. During the trial of the Lord Jesus, when he was before Pilate, Pilate announcing he could find no 
cause to put Jesus to death, tried to release the Lord Jesus to the crowd because it was an occasion where he could do that for one prisoner. And he said, I'm going to give you, the Lord, going to give you Jesus. He's not deserving of death. But what did the crowd do? The crowd cried out, don't give us Jesus, give us Barabbas. Now, what do we know about Barabbas? Barabbas was a convicted murderer. So the perfect, spotless, pure son of God died on the cross. And a wicked murderer went free. Isn't that a wonderful picture of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for all who will believe. You might be here this morning and you might think, I have done things that I can never be forgiven of. If you knew, Matthew, what I'd done, you wouldn't want me here. Well, I'm delighted you're here. And maybe even more than that, you wonder, and here's a really serious thing, how can the God of heaven forgive me? How can the God of heaven forgive me when I've done that thing? There is no sin. There is no sin that the blood of Jesus Christ cannot cleanse. So whatever it is that you're saying, can I be forgiven? The answer is yes. Because Jesus, the perfect one, died in the place of sinners. So will you come to him? It's a hard thing to see your heart, friends. But it's a great thing to know the weight of sin taken by the Savior on the cross. So look to him by faith, repent of your sin, turn to him and trust him. And know that full and free forgiveness that is the privilege of all who believe.